Time for another edition of Chip Chat with Chip Gibbons under extraordinary circumstances here, Chip. All three of us recording from separate locations, although we normally record with you from a separate location. Uh, Sam and I are separated from each other. We are living amid these social distancing guidelines. Uh, Cities, governments are reacting in all sorts of ways. What better time to pick Chip's mind about civil liberties amid a pandemic than right now, Chip? What's going on in your head? So I think there's a couple of things I want to point out. I I think it's important to take legitimate concerns and separate them from illegitimate concerns, right? One of the things that people in civil liberties groups and community like myself are always sort of harping on about is that in sort of an extraordinary emergency circumstance, the government could use sort of emergency powers to violate people's rights. And we see that all the time, like after 9-11, they ran for the Patriot Act, the FBI gets even sleazier than it was before. Uh, after Pearl Harbor, we know we have internment of Japanese Americans, World War One, um, they, they start the FBI's intelligence squad, which Hoover heads, they pass the Espionage Act, Obviously, we're still all, you know, victims of the FBI to this day. The Espionage Act still exists to persecute not socialists anymore who oppose World War I, but whistleblowers. So a lot of people, I think, are sitting around and looking at the fact that the government is using these emergency powers or could evoke these emergency powers to do something very, very frightening. But at the same time, we are living in a pandemic and there are legitimate public health concerns. Like you should be staying at home right now. You should not be, you know, out gallivanting around being the typhoid Mary of Petworth or wherever you, you live now. Um, uh, and, and the really interesting thing to me is that this is a case where the biggest problem at the federal level hasn't so far been government overreach But it's been the fact that the government is completely, i.e. Donald Trump, really doesn't want to react at all, drug their feet doing anything, probably cause people to die because of that, because they don't want to sort of mess up the quote-unquote economy, the economy being the daily stock market performance. And and when you think about it, right, when you have a sort of like terrorism or war-related emergency, they're always like, oh boy, now we can finally get the wobblies. Now we can finally persecute different racial minorities, but there hasn't been like a long-term secret desire on behalf of the government to like close down movie theaters, right? They weren't sitting at the Heritage Foundation with like Patriot Act 3.0, this time we get the movie theaters sitting around, where they were sitting around thinking, how could they get the left? How could they get Muslims? How could they make life for black people even worse? So. I think it really sort of calls into question some of the sort of more liberal or libertarian theories of the state and and sort of theories of repression, right? Like one of the things I always harp on, and I'm, I'm speaking only for myself right now, not my organization, this is not their line, is that like political repression is in fact political. It's not just, you know, the state is the state and they do expansive abuses of power because it's like, you know, drinking um, in intoxicating liquor or it's like Lay's potato chips. Once you have one, you you, you can't, you have to eat the whole bag. 
Um, but what it is that the state is based on real material interest and that there are certain groups they want to go after, groups that are opposed to them. But shutting down the economy is not something the state has been sitting around wanting to do. I mean, if you look at the 20th century, most of the successful revolutions involve general strikes where the whole economy is shut down. And I'm not saying this is at all analogous to that. This is people being forced out of work because of a pandemic. But the government really, really does fear, did really, really fear the general strike. And a lot of the repressive apparatuses that developed in the 20th century were about preventing that from happening. So state repression is really about facilitating economic exploitation. It's not about, you know, shutting down movie theaters. So you have this situation where we have a, a, gov a federal government in the U.S., a imperial presidency that has been given all these extraordinarily emergency powers that can do horrific things. And here we are in a situation where, you know, some degree of extraordinary power would, would be justified and they're, they're dragging their feet. They're denying, the, they were denying the number of cases for a while. I, where were the tests? Why did they not get out? Which is not to say there can't be any repression. We see in Hungary that the government over there is using this to basically become a dictator. Uh, Attorney General Barr passed around this order to sort of be able to shut down courts that some people interpreted it as basically suspending habeas corpus. We, 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 or I believe the Justice Department has also said that if you intentionally spread coronavirus, you can be prosecuted for terrorism. So we should be vigilant. We should be concerned. But I think we also have to be mindful of the fact that the people people are feeling the brunt of this shutdown who are losing money who our government exists to help them not lose money yeah. which is not to say the biggest you know losers right now are wall street or movie theater owners it's not it's working class people who were forced to go out and if you want to talk about authoritarianism, let's talk about the market, right? You know, if your boss says come in in a pandemic or else you can't pay your rent, you can't pay your, for your food, you can't get health care. I mean, what kind of choice do you have there? I mean, that's authoritarianism. But for a lot of people, you know, if it happens in the market, it's it's not authoritarian. Whereas like the coercive nature of the of the so-called free market is one of the greatest forms of authoritarianism. Yeah, that's an interesting point, Chip. And I keep thinking of the quote, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not really after you. And just because we have a, uh, a fascist in the White House, an extremist uh, in governments all around the world who would be more than happy to exploit this crisis, uh, as we're seeing happening in Hungary, for example, uh, doesn't mean that there isn't an actual crisis that does require um, powers to be taken that would normally make us uncomfortable. But like Trump is the last person we want to have this power given that. And I just keep thinking like, you know, so far he's used these sort of autocratic tendencies to build the wall. Yeah. And also, but, but also to like s send out misinformation about the pandemic as though it's not uh, as bad as it really is. Um, yeah, I, I could easily foresee a situation in the not too distant future in which uh, this virus comes back in the fall, as a lot of uh, doctors and medical experts are predicting. It'll come back even if we get a handle of it in the summer. 
in which Trump is like, you know, we can't hold elections. This is not safe. And as someone who is just yelling at the DNC for holding elections, primary elections in Florida and Illinois, like how how are we supposed to balance these things if the administration does take these sort of actions, which seem justified given the pandemic? So I'm not really aware of any sort of apparatuses that would exist to suspend the election in November. Let me let me rephrase that. Maybe Trump leans on Republican governors and secretaries of state to determine it's a health hazard and to uh, throw the election into chaos. I mean, the situation that I would be more worried about, and Trump has already come out against, like, mail-in voting, saying will exasperate fraud, is that you have a situation where in-person voting is very, very dangerous because of the pandemic for certain populations, or all populations, really, and that Republicans start this big crusade against, you know, mail-in voting. So you have, basically, in-person voting in the time of a pandemic is voter suppression. And the other thing I'm really concerned about is that since they don't want accurate information out there, is that you'll see crackdowns on whistleblowers and the press, right? There was reports in Reuters that Trump was having some of the Health and Human Service Department meetings classified, something that's reserved for military or intelligence meetings. Um, So I, I I would not be surprised if someone comes out with information about how the Trump administration is really fucking this up and the DOJ goes hard on them. Chip, I uh, I like to think our audience is more nationwide and around the world even, so I don't want to keep things too local. But I was curious to think, uh, as we're recording this, last night we all got updates on our phone saying that there was a stay-at-home order in Washington, D.C., and uh, in Maryland and Virginia from the governors there. And I was just wondering what your thoughts on that are. It's something that I've been working on since before the stay-at-home order in D.C. So in my official capacity of defending rights and dissent, uh, community groups that work on things around police accountability and over-policing in, in communities reached out to us and about how they were concerned about how a stay-at-home order could be used to facilitate sort of more over-policing, right? If it's a crime to be outside, we know they're not going to go to Georgetown and say, yo, go inside, but somewhere in a working-class neighborhood of of color in in D.C., if there's kids outside playing basketball and the police come up, you know, that situation could escalate in a way we don't want. So we were thinking about how do we balance the fact that a stay-at-home order is a valid public health thing to do, but also we do not need more over-policing. And we sent a letter to the mayor uh, well before before the um, stay-at-home order came out with some of our, our guidelines and stuff. And the letter was signed on by not just defending rights and dissent, but Ward, um, I believe the group is Ward 1 Public Safety, Metro DC DSA, uh, Ward 1 Public Safety Coalition, Black Lives Matter DC, Stop Police Terror, Sanctuary DMV, 
one DC. So a lot of community-based organizing groups I don't usually have the privilege of working with who were legitimately concerned about this. And what we said was that, you know, stay at home needs to apply to the police too. And that if you have a stay at home order and that it's enforced by police going out and harassing individuals, that undermines it, right? Because we know police can spread coronavirus. We know, you know, harassing people isn't social distancing. So the police, if you have the police enforcing this order against individuals, that's undermining social distancing. I'm totally fine with it being, you know, enforced against businesses. If you're a business that violates a stay-at-home order and tries to force your, you know, already underpaid workers to come in and risk their lives for your profit margin, you know, this is a situation where I'm fine with the hammer of the state coming down hard on you. But police should not be harassing individuals. And we took it a step further. We said, you know, stay-at-home applies to the police. The police should not be out there enforcing nonviolent offenses. They shouldn't be out there doing, you know, buy and bust where they, you know, buy undercover officers buy drugs. They shouldn't be enforcing laws against sex work and things like that. And that, you know, we know that over-policing, over-incarceration, mass incarceration have always been not a tool of public health. But with the coronavirus, we're in a really unique situation where, like, you know, those things are actually detrimental to public health. We know courts, we know prisons, we know jails, we know immigration detention centers are uniquely vulnerable to community spread of the coronavirus. And we should be emptying out the jails. We should be setting people free right now so that they don't get the coronavirus. And that if you get arrested for some, you know, stupid offense that shouldn't even be illegal in the first place, or even a serious offense, you know, a prison sentence could be a death sentence. Uh, with the coronavirus, uh, or just being detained in jail could be. And that shouldn't be the case. So our argument has been, sure, stay at place is fine, social distancing is fine, but the police need to practice social distancing too. Hell yeah. They can uh, social distance for the next couple of years in their homes, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Chip, Yes. Moving from the uh, how the security state at home is dealing with the coronavirus to how the security state abroad is dealing with it, you uh, recently gave a uh, socialist night school. Uh, we're going. We're going to give one. Or you're going <laughs> to give one. Excuse yes. me. You're going to give one uh, about U.S. sanctions and how they're exacerbating the. Uh, response to the pandemic sure i mean sanctions a lot of people think of them as an alternative to war they think oh it's this great nonviolent measure that's absolutely not true we know that forty thousand people have died because of the sanctions in venezuela we know that when bill clinton was president half a million children under the age of five died because of the sanctions imposed on iraq two different career u.n officials resigned under the when Clinton was in, was president, because they said the sanctions that were being imposed on that country constituted genocide. That's not my word. That's the words of two different UN officials who resigned. And you know, right now with the coronavirus, the sanctions are making things worse. We know that the sanctions are exacerbating the number of deaths in Iran. And what is the U.S. government doing? They're ratcheting up the sanctions. Joe Biden is on television saying 
he doesn't know if we should lift the sanctions against Iran or not. We're also escalating things with Venezuela. We have that ridiculous indictment of Maduro for, for narco-terrorism, for drug trafficking, and we have these idiotic tweets that are being sent out from the U.S. Attorney's Office about how if you have information that can lead to his arrest, he'll get this $15 million bounty. So we're really being governed by sociopaths because it is the utmost cruelty to try to use the coronavirus to inflict death and devastation on civilian populations who live under governments that we don't like, and those populations aren't responsible for the actions of their governments. And, you know, it, it's very worth noting that, you know, we had this big brouhaha um, the last time, we, not you and I, but but the, the world did, the last time we talked over, you know, Senator Sanders said something nice about Cuban doctors, oh, the horror. You know, Cuba is sending doctors to, to treat the coronavirus, and the U.S. State Department is telling countries not to, not to accept those doctors. Compare that to the U.S., which is ratcheting up already murderous sanctions to make them even more murderous. And you mentioned the Socialist Night School. Uh, one of the other things I do in my life is I'm a co-chair of the Political Education Committee for Metro DC DSA, and we run a Socialist Night School. And because of, uh, because of the pandemic, uh, all of our night schools are online now, so your listeners anywhere in the world can join in. But on April 6, uh, 6.30 Eastern Time, we're having a night school on sanctions as a weapon of U.S. war. I will be moderating the night school. We will have a number of very interesting guests. We'll have uh, Kaven Karzan, who's an Iranian-American researcher at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Also, Kevin Cashman from Center for Economic Policy and Research, CEPR, will be there. They both do a lot of research around sanctions, and, and they wrote an article for Jacobin called, you know, Sanctions Are Designed to Kill. Uh, Sarah Lazar, who I think might be familiar to some of your listeners because of her excellent journalism in these times, she recently wrote a piece about how the sanctions of Iran were exacerbating coronavirus. Um, called U.S. Sanctions on Iran are Increasing Coronavirus Deaths. They need to be stopped now. She's going to join us. Local DSA activists who are campaigning against the sanctions are going to talk about how we can help, you know, with the campaign against the sanctions. And I will, of course, moderate. Uh, but I am the least interesting person in involved in this. That's um, not true. Not true, Chip. Uh, you are... A man of many, many talents working on many different projects. All of them, of course, have been pre-cleared by the team here at Chip Chat, so it's all good. Yes. So, uh, yeah, that's where we are. In the context of the president using power, it would be nice to see the president maybe use a little more power in terms of invoking the Defense Production Act and uh, nationalizing the supply chain for, for medical supplies, if only temporarily. Uh, and he, he's, he's not doing it, at the, at, as Chip was noting, because he is submitting to the uh, authoritarianism of the market that is just going to let people die uh, because it wants to preserve uh, oligarchy as it exists in the 21st century. So not to get too wonky, the most famous case for limiting presidential power in the time of emergency or authority is a case called Youngstown Steel. The Supreme Court rules against uh, President Truman, who had nationalized a steel factory. 
I'm probably getting, I'm, this is a very baseline understanding of it, for nationalizing a, a, a steel factory, citing the Korean War as an emergency, blah, blah, blah. And they put together the whole framework for when the president can do things. And it's cited in cases about torturing or hold evil at Gitmo or wherever. It's, it's still the main precedent. But it's amazing to me that that is the case where the Supreme Court said the president went too far, whereas in cases about Japanese internment or things like that, like, oh, okay, you can intern these people. But when it comes to, like, nationalizing a steel, a steel factory, suddenly we're all concerned about executive overreach. Or her mind... Reminds me of John Yoo. What right there was when Trump first came into office, there was these series of articles like even John Yoo says Trump has gone too far with executive power. And all these liberals were like, oh, my God, John Yoo, you know, the guy who said the president has an inherent authority under the Constitution to crush a child's testicles in front of his father or some other gruesome act like that. Um said he went too far and actually in like the comments he gave i believe I, I may be wrong i don't think i am he was like oh i'm fine with the muslim ban it's what he's doing with nafta that's you know going too far so uh you know torturing people bombing countries terrorizing people at home listening to your phone calls uh detaining without trial those are all just cool but when you start you know messing with our free trade agreements uh, that's 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 the road to serfdom. Yep. Market authoritarianism uh, has existed for a while. It's as American as apple pie. Chip Gibbons, journalist with bylines and Jacobin Mag, The Nation, in these times. Policy director at Defending Rights and Dissent, though. The views he expresses on Chip Chat are his own. Thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. Of course, of course. I look forward to being on more regularly. Yeah, we'll do it again next week. Chip Gibbons. Thank you, Chip.